Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 28 of the Passionate DJ Podcast. This is a talk show dedicated to talking about the issues that are important to DJs. Together, we are all hoping to become better DJs through passion and purpose. I'm your host, David Michael. Thank you so much for deciding to spend the next half hour or so with us and for your support of the show so far. Tripp and Tony have the week off. Now, there were some personal matters that needed attending to, and we didn't get a chance to meet at the scheduled time. So they will, of course, be back with us for episode 29 next week. But I wanted to take the opportunity to reflect back on the guests we've had the pleasure of featuring on the show. Now, the Passionate DJ podcast is seeing growth lately, which is great. But it also means that there are probably a lot of people who have missed out on some of the great knowledge that our guests have dropped in earlier episodes. Episode 28 is all about revisiting these golden nuggets, and thanks for the wisdom these guests were willing to freely share with all of us. Thanks for deciding to tune in and to be a part of it. As far as spotlights on guests go, I'd be remiss if I didn't start with a longtime friend of the podcast. Casey Lane was an early supporter of the show and has a lot of experience running workshops, webinars, coaching, etc. in regards to teaching people how to treat their DJing like a business. This first clip is from episode 10, where I spoke to Casey about becoming a, quote, DJpreneur. At one point, she spoke about DJs doing a sort of pre-gig scan. Casey does a wonderful job describing this building block of crowd reading. Let's take a listen. You know, I really enjoy watching like a DJ, they get all set up or whatever. And before their set starts, I love to see them do like the stop and like scan. So instead of plugging everything in and then like, you know, playing, you know, the last DJ just got done and it's only like one minute into the track, you know, a guy will go up and just like play their song right away. I love it when I see somebody set all their stuff up, get their headphones on, let that track play out and just like see what the crowd is doing, see what the vibe is, see what's going on instead of being like so focused on what you're set in. You know, sometimes I'll, I, I'll let the whole track play. It's kind of like a sign of respect for that DJ that's before me. Who cares if it goes into like, you know, like you play at 11 and it goes, the track plays to like 11.03. Big whoop. I would love for people to kind of like, starts implementing that into their sets when they take over from somebody else get your stuff set up just stop and just watch the crowd watch how they react to this very last song and you know pay your respects to the dj that gave you this awesome dance floor casey has been a recurring guest on the podcast and we still check in on each other from time to time best wishes to her and her family next up we feature a clip from episode six that show was all about competitions and featured my interview with multi-award-winning turntablist Vect. When I asked for his insight when it comes to strategy and competition, here's what he had to say. Underpreparing is the biggest mistake for sure. You can never really prepare enough until you've entered a competition where you were prepared enough. Like You don't really know how much you need to prepare. Definitely err on the side of over-preparing. To a certain level, like say you want to be like the best in your region or win like a regional competition, like maybe you can achieve that by practicing like an hour a night or something. And then to be national, like you'd have to be like three hours when like I'm trying to 
beat like every single person in the world who's entering the competition. And it's like, I feel like I'm not even practicing enough. In, in DMC, like, there's so much history of it and so much stuff to reference that people know kind of how to make routines because they've, there's so many examples of, of great DMC routines. But the three style format is so new that there's only like a handful of actually great routines, like maybe less than three or something that are like really like well done from start to finish. People don't realize when you enter like a three style routine, you don't go up there and just mix for 15 minutes. It shouldn't just be like a random extract of of what you would be doing on a normal club night. A routine should be a photograph of the best, the absolute best stuff that you could put together way, way better than anything you could you could do in an actual club night. If your if your routine is not as good as the stuff you do when you're DJing regularly, like then it's just not nearly as good as you can make it. There's nothing really magical about competitions, but whoever practices the most wins. That's the secret to competitions. Sometimes like it, it takes a while because if one person's only been doing it for a couple of years and someone's been doing it 10 years, you have a lot of ground to make up. But in the end, like that's generally like there's a pretty strong correlation between how much someone practices and how well they do in competitions. The edge you get over other people like through practicing like technical skills is a lot more concrete than it is over things like learning your software or effects and stuff like that. That stuff is definitely important. But say like to learn how to like scratch at a decent level, it takes three years or something like that. And to learn how to use Serato to its full potential might take a couple months or something, right? And Serato is not something that's like, it's going to it's gonna change and be upgraded and software and technology changes and can really quickly make your skills with that software like redundant. Learning actual technical skills, whether it's scratching or trick mixing or having control over your equipment and movements in general is like a lot more solid if you're trying to set yourself apart from other people. Now, the coolest parts of that episode were the recordings we played of Vec doing his thing and tearing up the decks. Here's a clip of him doing his well-known routine titled, You Are Whack. Have I ever told you how whack I think you are? Do I have to tell you that you're whack, whack? Do I have to tell you that you're whack, whack? Here's a brief example of a complicated cut.
Vect has continued winning championships and breaking records since the recording of this episode. For this next clip, we rewind all the way back to episodes 3 and 4. These two shows featured my interview with Fortune, a Milwaukee-based DJ and promoter who heads up the promotional outfit A-Part, with an emphasis on music activism. Fortune had a lot to bring to the table in this interview, so if you're new to the podcast, make sure to go back and listen to these interviews in full. First, here's what she had to say about, quote, doing it for the love. There does tend to be a lot of petty politics, and you hear so often, do it for the love, you should just do this for the love, and you see posts, and you see people criticizing each other and saying it should all be for the love, which is great, and obviously the ultimate goal is to do what you love. But also, people take what they love and they do it for business. They want to make a living doing it. Or some people do just want to own a club. Or they do want to do it because it seems like the cool thing to do. I think that's absolutely fine. And I think there's this sort of irony that in all other realms of business, that's fine. No one says you should be an accountant for the love of it. You should be a lawyer only if you want to like stand up for people's legal rights and social justice. There isn't that sort of highly moral expectation. And yet I think there is that with doing music events. And yet, ironically, we have a lot of shadiness in music events and a lot of people getting pissed off with each other and people getting ripped off and people bitching behind each other's backs. This standard somehow doesn't play out, even though people like to say this is why you should do it. And I think that could be shifted a little bit if people would just say, you know what, it's okay to do it because you think you could make some money doing it, or it's okay to do it because your friends will think you're cool. Try it. Go for it. Try and learn this business and do the best you can and see how it works out for you. Generally, if people don't succeed or they don't love it, they're going to stop one or the other. If they succeed, then that's actually good for us. That's good for our industry. That's good for our community, whether they're doing it to be cool or not. Next, Fortune describes how telling people to support our scene may be counterproductive. Unless throwing a fundraiser, don't ask people to support your event, music, or scene. Parties are not charity. They are fun, exciting musical events, and promotions should make people want to attend for this reason. I think when people hear people saying, especially during some of the harder years, support our scene, support our scene, support our scene, it just sets up this feeling, even if people aren't thinking it, there's this feeling of this is something that's failing, this is something that needs help, this is something that needs me, which is the opposite of exciting, which is the opposite of like, oh, this is something I, I want to be involved in because it's going to make me feel a different experience than my work and my job and I'll be uplifted. And I think it just goes against everything that, that we want to convey to people. And finally, here's what she has to say about trying to get all of the region's promoters all on the same page. I've seen promoters get into physical altercations over having events on the same night. We've been through many phases here in Milwaukee, and so much depends on the popularity of the music. Obviously, the more popular it is, the more people are going to do events. Hopefully, with it being more popular, there's more of a market, so there's more to go around. And therefore, competition is less threatening. But when people feel threatened when there's competition, it can become destructive. People feel like this is going to really negatively impact my event. What the challenge is to not focus on that, even if someone's event could negatively impact your event, we have no control over what they chose to do. What you can control 
is the standard of your event and what you put into that. If a competitor is being negative, it doesn't matter. But if someone is setting a standard or showing that there is a successful way to do things, we can learn from that. I also think that with competition, there was this whole culture for a little while, at least in Milwaukee, of, oh, we shouldn't compete with each other. We should all work together. What we all need to do is come together and do events together and communicate. I've come to look at that a little like communism. theory, it's a great idea, but it doesn't work in practice. When you try and get 20 promoters around a table and say, hey, let's all work on this event equally, and we only have bar hours from 10 till 2 and 7 days in the week, and everyone wants to have certain DJs play and you've got 4 hours, it just doesn't work. You always end up with a couple of people who are going to put in most time, most effort, most dedication. People are not going to all work together. And we have to accept that. I think it's great to have lots of people wanting to do events. That's great. It's promoting music in itself. The more people that are out there going, hey, listen to this and come to this and dance to this, the more we're letting people know about this music culture. That is positive. Since this episode was recorded, I've come to think of Fortune as a friend, which is the case for many people who have been featured on the podcast, and she and I finally did get to meet each other in person last year in Detroit. I hope to see her at the festival again this year. Next up, we have a clip featuring a very good friend of mine. He's someone we'll be bringing back to the podcast very soon, and after you hear this next clip, I'm sure you'll see why. Episode 9 featured my interview with John Chapel. John has been running a weekly EDM show featuring an unending rotation of DJs for over five years now. This is something that's not easy to do in our little hometown. And I wanted to speak to John about the struggles of small town promotion, which is what episode 9 was all about. This clip features, perhaps, a differing view than the last one. But giving an opposing viewpoint has never been something John's been afraid of. Here are his thoughts on collaboration in a local scene. You knew I was going to just rant about something that I hate. Like, I'm already getting heated. Don't don't compete with the establishment. There's so much that goes into th- this point I'm going to make. And, it, and it's not a matter of, like, fall in line. This isn't, like, a, some Orwellian nightmare, our scene, okay? Uh, but if, if there's an establishment, and you go and you attempt to be part of that establishment, there's absolutely no reason to abandon that establishment or to segregate your genre of music from that establishment and think that, oh, this genre that literally has been having Beatport sales for maybe a year, okay, <laughs> can somehow survive on its own, okay, without, like, house and breaks. It won't happen. And you can tell that, like, this issue is personal to me because this has happened in the last two months, three months. You can't survive without the establishment of what the genre encompasses, which, whether you like it or not, is house and breaks. You can't abandon the establishment socially, which, in this case, if you're going to do your own night and honestly just copy the entire model that I've done and somehow do it incorrectly, then you're sort of admitting to me that that night is the establishment and you're going to mimic the establishment. Honestly, I get offended. I'm really offended that someone can just walk in, see anyone doing any job, and go, I can do this too. It's really sort of offensive. This has happened a few times, and one of the people came to me first. 
Just one. I don't think he's doing his weekly anymore because he's just like, I can't handle the stress. I don't know how you do this. And he's like, I have this new appreciation for what you do. Booking two to three DJs a week and focusing on keeping that fresh, doing that is work on its own. Obviously, I have just a deep, deep love for EDM and, and DJs. You know this, okay? Having said that, some of you are the biggest prima donnas just ever, okay? <laughs> so I'm essentially doing this work slash labor of love, you know, and I got to deal with, I, I, I want pizza, but I want the best intent, you know? What do you mean you don't have food tonight? Or, you know, and just, uh, my needles aren't working. What the, you know, just all this complaining. And I guess, like, okay, relax. This is a very flexible, home-built <laughs> night. That, that's difficult. Okay, so the night night's difficult, and I think if, if, if someone puts that much work into it and it works, then it's only natural for that to become the establishment. Don't compete against the establishment. All of that explanation gets me to, to this point, which is it's not don't compete because it's hard. Don't compete because it's impossible. That's not how what we do ever works. It's never worked that way. There's too many of us on the these are the people that get shit done list for you to be like competing with one and not have it just ripple to everyone. No one's gonna pick sides. And if you're the one asking, if you're the one like quietly sending the ultimatum, like it's either them or us, the new people, you, every time you're going to get left in the dust. In just in this short time, this four years, how many times have we seen this happen? Six? That's a lot. Every time someone steps up, the rest of us are like, okay, cool, like we're into it, you know, good. And then suddenly it just becomes this big hype I'm famous in Dayton, Ohio fest. And it's like, I want more events. I want more stuff to do. What I'm, what I'm asking is not asking. I'm telling you, you should do this. You should work with like, that's how it works. You know, we can't do what we do without each other. And there's just so many niches to fill in and to fit. And, and, and it's not a permission thing. It's absolutely just like working. And that, and that's the thing. You can't do it without the collaboration. It, it, it's just never going to work. And no one's going to choose. You have to respect the fact that, like, you're not going to come out of the gate with your guns blazing. You should be showing up to these things. You can't just show up and be like, hey, I'm doing this, and it's this brand of music, and I heard of this DJ, so I got him to show up, and here's a flyer. Don't be hype, fake hype about what you're doing. I think it takes a, a, a specific type of person to do this. Uh, what I feel would be like correctly. Now that there's there's one way, but there's just so many wrong ways. <laughs> and and this is what it is. Uh, don't chase fame because you're you're not gonna get it. And the reason I say that is because that has been the problem with these new new kids popping up. Everyone is just sort of just chasing fame. If you don't want everyone coming in there and being all super rock star, like you know, don't take it too seriously. You can still be professional about it without being like, you know, we need three CDJs, stat, call everybody. John's a lot of fun to put behind a microphone. In this clip, he goes on a small rant about a Facebook post involving a poor approach to self-promotion. You can put this in the rules of things not to do when you're a promoter is, is there's this mentality of like haters make you famous. That is the dumbest shit ever made into an image meme on Facebook. Haters make you famous. Anyone with any level of criticism is not only wrong, but the more people that hate you, the better you're doing. When was this ever fabricated in someone's mind to ever <laughs> become 
Like, people believe this. Haters make you famous. No, you're doing something wrong. Haters make you famous is like the worst, worst advice anyone ever, promoter or not, can take. That's the, I don't, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, you know. If, if, I, if somebody isn't hating me, I'm doing it right. Is that how... Why not be a shitty boyfriend? The more she complains, like, the better you are, right? I mean, because that's, that's haters make you famous. Such a completely non-intuitive thing. It's just wrong. Yeah. It's just absolutely wrong. You're just in denial. Like, and when you have that mentality, like, great, I no longer have to worry about you. You're like a diarrhea person. <laughs> haters make you famous. So stupid. Let's just say, I can't wait to have him back on the show. In this next audio clip, I speak with John Skinner, who invented a collaborative online tool called musicgateway.net. John was involved in the scene in the UK in the 80s and during the dawn of the rave era through the 90s. I couldn't help but ask him, what was the club and rave scene like in places like London and Brighton back in the day? I remember going to see Cole Cox play on a Thursday night. He used to do um, the Zap Club in Brighton, which was quite a well-famous club back in the day. This was um, when you could literally get 100 people in that venue. It was a tiny little venue. They, they, they grew it over, over the years and stuff. And, and people like Norman Cook on a Friday night at the Escape Club before it even created Fatboy Slim when he was with the House Martins and stuff like that. So it's difficult to describe what it's like now. I mean, obviously, I'm sort of a little bit past my kind of clubbing days in the sense of going out week in week out you know it, it was it was great it was it was exciting the music was obviously totally fresh it was it was a different era and obviously the whole kind of underground rave scene as well that kind of kicked off so you literally had people setting up sound systems in fields in the middle of nowhere and it was it was literally like um someone would know where it is and then at the last minute the word would get out whether that was through calls or text messages and, and then you would literally jump in your car drive down the motorway and and try and find it you know and it, invariably it was in a field in the middle of somewhere you know it was just kind of obviously a, just a totally different vibe to to what it is you know i was lucky enough to play at quite a few different big clubs up in london and um you know i remember um the first time i went to the winter music conference in 1995 at the fontainebleau and it, and again it it was less about being an event there was sure. there was some good kind of business and conference stuff and networking that, that, that got done and i kind of done a sort of four or five years on the trot going to miami so it's kind of i think it's lost a little bit of its um more about the events than it is about kind of the industry going and stuff now i mean ims for example you know ib throughs and, and ade especially in amsterdam has pretty much taken over now the the, the mantle of the business side of the, the you know dance industry and stuff like that the fifth episode of the podcast was very exciting for me because I had the opportunity to interview a legend. As a 20-plus year veteran in the underground dance music scene and a deeply respected name, I was excited to bring him in as part of the show. In this clip, we discuss the accessibility of music-making technology with none other than trance music legend Airwave. Let, let me be very clear about this. In my opinion, accessibility of all this software and hardware and everything else is just a great thing. It gives potentially many others and many gifted people to discover about themselves. Music is self-exploration. 
Music is what helps you know yourself better. No matter if you make money out of it, it's very, very important that music, hardware, and software gets accessible to people, and not the opposite. Music used to be very baroque and very in the specific way that it was only accessible to give um, to rich people. If you see what I mean, you had to learn how to play piano first of all. You had to read sheet music. You had to be able to play the guitar, for example. In the 70s and even before, but in the 60s, let's say, when guys like Jimi Hendrix and and the Beatles came on the market, they they were so passionate about music, and you you could see that you didn't have to 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 learn about sheet music. And just the same about uh, about jazz music. It was just as simple. They couldn't read sheet music, but they could play like tons and tons of melodies uh, at a terrific speed. And this is this is why I think that accessibility of this technology is a good thing. On the longer term, it is going to move us forward in, into life. It's going to make uh, music sound better as well. We are just growing up with it. But we we have just started growing up. To be honest, I'm really happy that I've known both sides of the um, of that world before the digital revolution and after it. And to be honest, I will n- I would never go back to to the way it was before because of that digital revolution. I just grab my laptop, a few keyboards, and I can I can perform a- anywhere. It's just amazing. Twenty years ago, it was next to impossible. I can just take my machine controller and my Omnisphere and a keyboard and my iPad and I can just start making music on the fly like no one else. And it sounds banging and amazing and full, you know? It was impossible 20 years ago. I don't think that going back to analog will be a great move forward because going back to analog is great. It's cool. It's amazing. I've seen big artists showing their brand new modular systems and everything else. I'm just like, meh. What's the point? You know, I think it's a lot cooler to make great results with great software because it's so much more convenient. It's not the tools that make you a great musician. It's yourself. It's your brain. It's your heart. It's your passion. It's your work out of it. Episode 15 was an interview with Booty Vogt, author of the SoundCloud Bible and co-founder of Heroic Recordings. Now, even though we had some sound quality issues with the recording, we went ahead and published the episode because Booty had a lot of knowledge bombs to drop on us. Here are his thoughts on finding an audience in today's modern climate. There's multiple variables, one of them being uh, what the genre is that you're pushing or the style of music, because that sort of dictates both your audience, but also has the audience dictate the mode of consumption. So, for example, we're in electronic music, mostly new genres, stuff that five years ago didn't exist, future bass or the, the revival of deep house, right, with this new almost tropical house sound. Something that is key to our our success is that we're really able to reach that audience within the platforms where they consume it. So, for example, we know that for the people who listen to Future Bass or to Current Deep House, they're super active on Spotify and SoundCloud. Most will be between 15, 25 years old. So that means that social media is a huge dimension of this, which is, of course, a strength we play to. In terms of how to operate differently, we've all come to understand that physical is fading, that downloads are fading, and that streaming is going to be the next big thing, and that the whole business is now navigating towards finding a balance where monetization for streaming is reasonable, right? Majors and record labels are satisfied with the amount of money coming in and the payout they're generating for the artists 
whom are only getting revenue now through both performances and streaming. I guess our role as a record label, as an indie, is to use online to generate exposure for our artists and then to provide the external services to be able to capitalize on that so that when an artist is doing well, we're able to book him for a tour. And when his release is doing well, we're able to sync him to an advertisement. For this next clip, we go back to episode 11. Many of you are familiar with Tony DeSero as he now co-hosts the podcast with me along with Trip. But back then, he was featured as an interviewee. He, along with Billy Dickensheets, run a successful promotion outfit in my town. I asked them both what they thought DJs should do more of. Here's what they had to say. Interaction with the promoters, the crowd. Like, I have been around some little talent, and I've been around some big talent. And I'm sure Tony's been around some major talent. And I've witnessed guys who are the coolest people in the world could chop it up with anybody. And then I've witnessed guys who are just arrogant, outright pricks. To see them be that way to the people that made them their money. These guys wouldn't be rich if it wasn't for the crowd. And for them to treat the consumer, the people that buy them and pay their way through life, to treat them with such disrespect and look down upon them and stuff like that like that to me is just in reality check if you are in any small market and you look down upon anyone buddy they you got a long way to look up because you are very very low on that totem pole in the bigger scheme of things i guess i would say to touch on that a little bit i'm really big on personality as well you know there's there's people that will come out and watch me play and see me play that are not really big into electronic music. You know, they're more into hip-hop or they're more into this or more into that. But because they like me as a person, they'll come out. They'll support it, you know. And that's touching on, on what you were saying, Billy, about, about people and, and the arrogance. It's it's You're cutting your own throat. I always see it as you're selling yourself as a service. And for the rest of your life, now that I've taken, I've taken a step into a promoter and throwing in events and tony can speak to this as he's been a dj for so long but you know you put yourself in the limelight you're selling yourself as a product basically like people aren't coming to the events that we throw if they think i'm a shitty product to me this is the hospitality business i mean throwing a party is 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 you know being hospitable to people our final clips come from two great people who are no strangers to the show kilma and joe pardo in episode 16 Here are their thoughts on getting serious about goals and purpose. Okay, what is it I want? Okay, well, I want to be a famous DJ. Okay, well, what do famous DJs have? Well, they're touring all the time. Okay, well, how do I get the touring? Well, I get that interest. Well, how am I getting the interest? Well, I'm offering something nobody else is. Okay, well, what am I good at? What can I offer that nobody else is offering? Doing your research. What are those people doing? The mindset is tricky because I feel like that's an emotional journey, right? If you've got a lot of things going on in your life, maybe you're using music as a distraction or maybe you're using music as a way to um, enrich your life. I think that you need to go within yourself and figure out what your passions are and maybe that is experimenting, maybe that's trying out different equipment. I thought I was just going to do the DJ thing and that was that and now I'm teaching DJs. How did that come around? You know, oh well I didn't know how to do something so I learned and then people started asking me so I taught them and then eventually I was like, I should monetize, why am I doing this for free? I'm really damn good at this. It's 
can be trial and error, but definitely go to the drawing board. Write down what it is you want in your life, what that looks like, so that you can break those down into smaller and smaller things that you can accomplish every day. And I think that helps motivate people. You really got to set goals. And uh, they don't have to be huge goals. But um, one of the things for me when I was doing a lot of competitions I would look at the people that I was going against, right? And a lot of times they were people that had been DJing as long as I had been alive. And I'd be like, you know, if as long as I don't come in last, I'll be happy, right? Because these guys have been doing it way too long and, and all that. So to me, it's like, hey, I didn't come in last. Hey, I, I came in fifth out of six. But you know what? Every single person on that roster that I was going against, they've been doing it. I had only been doing it for like three years at the time. I think that the the dreaming part comes with the with the overall aspect of it you know the the where where is it where I would like to go and that that's the one that can change a lot and often it's the smaller goals that you're just going to keep adding more and more smaller smaller goals uh, that you can check off because they're easy right get a gig get you know get to play somebody's backyard party and then get uh, a, like a small bar that probably doesn't care who you are and then get a, a little bit bigger bar and a little bit bigger bar and before you know it you're, you're just steamrolling once again, two people who, over time, I've come to think of as friends. We hope to hear from both of you again soon. Folks, that wraps up things for this episode of the Passionate DJ Podcast. Next week, it's back to business as usual. Trip, Tony, and I would love to see you back for episode 29. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning. <laughs>